Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Look, y'all know we harp on it a lot. You need a good pair of binos. Yeah, I never hunted with binos until I was almost into my 20s. I never did it when I was a teenager or anything like that. Or when I was a kid, we never had binos. And when I bought my first pair of Vortex binos, the first binos I ever purchased back in like 2015, it immediately made a huge difference for me, especially in the turkey woods. So give yourself the advantage of a good pair of binos this spring, whether you're looking for more of like an entry-level bino like the Vortex Diamondbacks or something really, really nice like the Razors. Vortex is going to have something for you. And hey, don't pay full price for it. Use our discount code at eurooptic.com. Use the code SGN10 to get a discount on any Vortex optics that you want to order. Again, that's eurooptic.com, code SGN10 to go get a discount on any Vortex product you order. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. 
Listen to the deal. Listen to the deal on Spotify. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoors Podcast. On this outro, I've got the ginger bow hunter sitting here next to me on the couch. Jacob, how you doing? I'm oh, just trying to stay cool in this super hot weather we get down here now. Oh, I know. 97 degrees, and it's June, what, 14th? God, help us. Uh, no, Come God August. help us. We got, we got a special guest on this here outro uh, to talk about Monday's episode, Mr. Josh Hilliard from First Light. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm good, guys. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Like like uh like Jacob said, <laughs> someone apparently left Satan's front door open and <laughs> we're just well, you got, burning in the south right now. <laughs> I'm telling you what, it's it's not that far off. We're supposed to get that tomorrow. It's supposed to be like ninety seven degrees up here tomorrow. So Up in Michigan? That's, uh, that's hot. That's hot for up here. Yep. Oh man. That's I bet that's real hot for y'all up there. <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> I didn't know. Yeah, down here, I think our heat index uh, tomorrow is like 115 or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty yep. depressing. We'll, t- we'll, take the ca- we'll take the cast iron pan out there, put it on the road, and start cooking some eggs by 9 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. Yep. So, uh, far, a far cry from deer season, boys. A far cry, but it, yeah. it, it'll get here one day. I don't know. I'll say this, not to jump too far ahead, but Josh, when you're hunting South Carolina in August, it might be pretty hot, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was gonna say I'm not too far off here. I'm I'm uh I'm I'm looking forward to that one, but also dreading it at the same time. It's gonna be an interesting experience, that's for sure. Yeah, man. I mean, really in the South, what a lot of people consider our worst time is like August through maybe early September. That's like that's when it gets September. It starts sloping off and not being as bad. But man, you get some of the worst days, just like hot, high humidity. So this is what we're getting right now is kind of like as as bad as it gets pretty much, and we're already getting it here in June, so that's great. But yeah, yeah, uh, August is going to be brutal too. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I was going to say we didn't come on here to talk about weather. Of course, we just had a, a great podcast episode to come out this week uh, with Adam and Heath Jolly from North Carolina. That was from recorded that with those guys back in April uh, while I was up there actually doing a quail run, picking up some some train birds for mm-hmm. the dogs. And uh, stayed over at Adam's house and, and knocked that episode out. That was the part one. Went back up there a couple weeks later to do the part two series, which come out next Monday, which guys are going to thoroughly enjoy that if you enjoyed this episode. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was super fun, man. I'll be honest, because it's been a little while since I listened to the episode. I'm only about three quarters of the way through. And uh, as I kind of remember recording it, but also Andrew said early before we started recording this episode, uh, a lot of the juice comes pretty late in the episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of leaves us hanging there for part two. Uh, so uh, real quick, Andrew, what was kind of your take on the podcast so far? Um, so Adam is a guy that we actually interviewed a couple years ago and we had him on talking about the, that 13 point that he killed out of its bed pretty much Mm -hmm. in North Carolina near a parking area. There's a whole episode on that. And as we were like trying to figure out new guests, he had mentioned his brother at, at a couple points to us when we were asking him about if he knew anybody. And, uh, and so you, like you said, you had occasion to be up there next to him so you went and recorded with both of them and this is actually one that i think that we tried to do last year and it got put off and so we were finally able to make it happen this year and especially after going back and listening to his first episode i'm like man that is some like good stuff it, it was a we did it in like 2018 i was gonna say what's the episode number you, oh i don't know well i was gonna say look it up while we're talking and we can we yeah. can kind of plug that uh yeah your phone's behind you <laughs> no no that was something that's interesting so uh, 
thankfully we were able to do it in person because we talked about doing it over the phone. And the problem is when you have two people over the phone, like, you know, you have, you know, issues with, you know, internet connection, depending on if they're on Wi-Fi or not, and then also cell signal. So that makes it tough, but be able to do it in person with them is an absolute blast. I'll be honest, they are awesome guys. And by the way, in incredible shape, okay? I'm going to say that right now. They said they're like 41, 42. <laughs> These dudes are like marathon athletes, okay? I was over there. I'm like, I talked about the podcast. Stuff, so I'm like, you guys are in shape. I'm over here like the freaking doughboy. <laughs> like terrible, dude. And uh, I was like, dang. I was like, man. I'm like, but, you know, as they talked about, you know, not only for what they do for a living, but also for uh, that style of hunting. Like, dude, you got to be in shape, man, to stick with those deer. Because he talks about in the episode a ton of, you know, they're hunting places that are two, three miles, three and a half miles plus back from the parking area, and that's over a mountain ridge or over multiple ridges that they go over at. And they're hunting anywhere between, you know, on the lower elevation, 1,700 foot of elevation, all the way up pushing 5,000 feet. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, that's that's a lot to deal with, especially when you're kind of hunting that kind of area. Plus, they're packing camera gear. Plus, they're going in, and they're never spending a lot of times in one area, and they're never doing pre-hung setups. Like, they're always running gunning. Uh, yeah so super impressive that that was episode 135 uh from 2019 it's called outsmarting outsmarting mature bucks with adam jolly and uh one of the things and and josh i'm interested in your thoughts on this this is kind of funny the connection here um one of the things that i loved about this episode and and what these guys had to say was the fact that one they have success in early season which is it's really difficult to find people that are successful in early season to interview but it's even more difficult to find people who are successful in early season on morning hunts. And a lot of whitetail yep. media is like, man, don't hunt the mornings. And Josh, I, I know that your buddies with Mark Kenyon wired to hunt. And I've heard <laughs> so many times on there, they're talking about like a lot of his guests are like, don't hunt the mornings, which I, I get the wisdom behind that. And I agree with it to some extent. But at the same time, the contrarian in me, I want to be like, dang it. Now I want to find somebody who like kills the crap out of some big bucks in the mornings and early season and uh and we found them so that that was super satisfying to to find that yeah that was super interesting one of the big things that stuck out to me because i've always i've always shied away from mornings in the early season um if i'm in an area that like i don't want to blow up you know so like typically uh one of the things that stuck with them is just like they're hunting big tracks of public it seems like so they can be a little bit more aggressive um, especially in those early seasons where those deer haven't been pressured as much, you can maybe get away with a few more things that definitely took that as a takeaway, you know, in some of those scenarios where, where you're not worried about that too much, like heck go for it. Um, yeah, that's, that's gonna be one of my goals this year, I think is to, to try a few mornings in that early season and, uh, just be a little bit more aggressive. Um, cause it's something I've shied away from in the past, but sure seems like you can be successful. Yeah. And they kind of followed a theme that really there's a lot of guests that we interview over over the years who kind of follow this theme of they're very much the kind of guys who are are walking in and assessing things on the ground uh they're not they're not really the type that are going in this time of year like they're not going in every weekend in the summertime and scouting stuff out they're they're hitting a place up opening weekend and they're walking it until they find deer and then they're hunting that and they're very much on their feet like most recent sign which uh, like I like I just said, is like a common theme with a lot of people, and it's something that, as we've interviewed people who do that, and I've tried it over the years, I've found a lot of luck with it. And Jacob, I know you have too. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially in those early season hunts, I feel like it's especially critical in those early season hunts. Matter of fact, so well, it's like what we talked about in the episode, and uh, you know, Josh, you might be able to relate with this. 
we we talked about in the episode of like a lot of these bucks, especially early season, not having like huge areas they're roaming. Like if you're going to catch them during daylight, it's in a very small area, um, and especially like the areas that they're in up in the mountains. Um, that's what they found, and like you find pockets of not only bucks but like mature bucks all being in within the, this little round that's got all the security cover the food the water everything they need and unless you seriously do something to i mean totally get them out of the area they're sitting in that area for a little while so you they talked about almost pretty much their style of hunting is similar i guess you could say like what uh andre DeQuisto talks about like kind of the whole bump and dump run like that kind of thing uh or like uh infault dan infault talks about but they're doing it in a little bit different fashion in an area of the country that's not known for that, being, you know, the East Coast, Southeast, you know, Appalachian Mountains, um, and having a ton of success with it. But also having the idea and the mindset, like, they're not worried about failing. I mean, he talks about that multiple times in the episodes. Like, if we screw the deer up, I'm only going to hunt this area for one or two days, and then I'm gone. Like, I'm never hunting the same spot again uh, for the rest of the season for the most part, unless for some reason he gets stuck about it, which I think we talked about a little bit in the, the second episode of a specific buck he actually did that with, mm-hmm. where uh, he kind of stuck with that deer. Um, and then also for potentially a part three episode, me going back up there, talk a little bit more about some of the rut tactics, which are really interesting. But, um, but I mean, Josh, that's one thing, and I know you've talked to a lot of guys too, and you know, especially with some of the, the team over at First Light, there's some super successful bow hunters specifically. You know, those guys that are successful early season, I mean, they're getting in pretty tight to those deer, whether it's on a food source or in around that bedding area that that buck's kind of, you know, lingering. Yeah, for sure. I think I think that's the name of the game, like trying to find those early season patterns and, and getting in there as close as you can on those deer. Um, you know, one of the things too, like I'm not exactly sure when – and you guys probably know this, but North Carolina, when, when is that bow season open? So like that early season, are they talking like September? Are they talking early October? September 8th, to roughly 8th okay. and 9th is normally when they open, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I, I would imagine some of that has to do with like temperatures too. Like your mornings are some of your cooler times of the day. Um, you know, down South, you know, the afternoon hunts that are typically good up here, like early October, like we're not dealing typically with, 70 80 90 degrees in, in october when we open up up here so i think that's you know those afternoon hunts in the north are a little bit more uh lower impact higher reward um where like those morning hunts in the north and uh early season like very risky like you got to get in close to them if you're going to be successful and you could you could screw it up pretty easily just because they're back to bed so early um up here um in those early season hunts but yeah it's super interesting to kind of realize how much of that stuff in, in North Carolina is relatable across the entire whitetail range. You know, talking with other folks, there's, you know, there's a lot of things you can take away from that episode um, to really anywhere in the country. Yeah. Not to foreshadow the second episode, but you mentioned a few things that come up on the second episode, <laughs> which is uh really kind of, you call it juicy, really interesting. It's the aspect of, like you said, I kind of brought up the question about like them hunting mornings. And that's exactly what they said is it's the coolest time of the day. It's been cool yeah. for, 10, 12 hours. Uh, it's going to be the coolest it's going to be right at daybreak. And you're going to catch some of that movement. And one thing, God, I don't know. I'll, 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 I'll mention it, but it's going to come up next episode. You, get <laughs> your, you hear Heath really going in detail on it. Is the aspect of if, if you were going to plan a hunt early season and if he had like some flexibility to schedule, he's like, I'm like, if I don't have to be out there every single day early season, he's like, I'm going to wait for that first little cool front. And I'm not going to hunt the afternoons. I'm going to hunt the mornings when that cool front's coming through. And he's like, those bucks can be out lingering more in the mornings and you can catch them coming back to bed during daylight hours and get a shot opportunity. And he's talking about mm-hmm. having plenty of success doing that as well uh, instead of, again, focusing on the afternoons. And also one thing that they talked about in, in more detail on the second episode, because we go even way more detail on this topic, is the idea of 
in the mornings in their area, they're in the mountains, hunting these big secondary ridge points coming off the main mountain, like the main ridge tops of these, you know, higher elevation areas. The buck can only get to that bed from a couple directions. It's not like in flatland, rolling hill country, or even like maybe ag culture, where that deer can truly come in and do a 360 and quote unquote really J hook, J hook into that bed. Where they're at, they can't do that. They might be a rock bluff 20 yards behind the bed. So he has to come straight up that ridge point or off the side of that ridge point and come to that bed. And then he'll circle right there at the bed. And that's where they talked about them having success in that area versus if you were in hill country, especially that kind of time of the year, a lot more general rolling hills. It might not work because that deer truly could J-hook into that area, especially if it's a much more mature buck. Um, So they talk about that as being a huge advantage in the mountains where they're hunting, which kind of is what got me and Andrew kind of more excited about trying to find some some of that stuff in Alabama. Oh, 100%. (laughs) Yeah. So, like, people heard us talking about it on outros a couple months ago right after you actually interviewed these guys. But these are the guys that inspired me to, like, really start getting out of my comfort zone a little bit and try this new area. Uh, So, I mean – that, that's where that's where all that came from. So the way that they talk about mountains, and a lot of mountain guys are like this, where they see it as a real advantage to have that kind of topography where, where they can leverage that and really find some good pinch points and, and find areas that, that put deer in kind of a disadvantage, kind of like what you were just talking about. They can't really J-hook like they can. And, and so they found that. They've, they've found a way to use that where they can literally sit on a buck's bed and shoot a, shoot a buck out of his bed. Like the story, and also the story too, which was interesting, is uh, getting in there so early that the buck is coming in before daylight and laying down, and you just got to sit there and wait for it to get light enough to shoot and then pick him out. And, and I, just, I found that story really interesting where the buck came in at like 5 a.m. It didn't get light for an hour and a half. It gets light. He can't see the buck. It's laying up in this blowdown. And then at like 7.30 in the morning, 7.30, 8 o'clock, it stands up to feed, and that's when he gets a shot. And I'm like, that's so nerve-wracking, dude. You're sitting in front of that deer. You're sitting within a bow shot of that deer for like hours. <laughs> well, Andrew, yeah, it's kind of like morning hunts tough for folks as they're not getting in there early enough, and those those bucks are beating them back. It's um, that's super interesting, but just making sure you're in there before they get back and, and really using the, the topography. I mean, it's no different than a rut hunt, right? Like mm-hmm. they're using the same sort of tactics of like finding pinch points and funnels, just like with how they get to their beds in, in the early season. So super interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that and also just the amount of detail when they talk about scouting. And I cannot, because I didn't make it to the last quarter of the episode uh, where they kind of get more of this detail. So I can't remember if this is from this part one episode or part two episode. Yeah. When they talk about like, the actual scouting aspect of like when they're going in and they find one of these areas and one of these beds has been used, it's got tons of whip rubs all the way around it, you know, from like the early season where they're taking the velvet off um, and just all that sign in around the bed. But they are very thorough that first time in there of trying to find which trails are the exit trails and which trail is the couple entry trails and try to figure out based off those entry trails, where can I set up based off thermals and everything else in this, you know, really steep country. Like Heath talks about in that one scenario, which actually that hunts on YouTube, I believe, right, Andrew? Like, yes. So you can actually see that hunt that he talks about on YouTube when that buck stands up and he takes the shot at it. Um, So that's another cool thing about these guys. Like these guys aren't like, uh, Mm -hmm. oh man, not to get too sorry. Josh, you probably know, you probably have met people like this. You hear people talk about certain things like, is this dude like legit? And like, to me, like the only way like you're like, you find it like they're legit is like if they carry a camera around and like, okay, actually show you like what's actually happening. And these guys actually do that. So that's another way to like validate what these guys are doing as being like legit and not just saying something, just yeah, to say something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But is on the aspect that they're so thorough 
trying to figure out how that buck's coming to that bed, that they're trying to figure this all at one time and figure out where's the best way for me to get into this area based off thermals on a morning hunt specifically and hang my stand where I can get in here clean hours before this buck potentially comes back to bed uh, and have an opportunity at him. And again, he, you know, he talks about that, that perfect scenario of how that happened, uh, which is, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, but like we've talked about, it's super ballsy. And, you know, like Josh, you said, depending on the kind of area that you're hunting and how much property you have to work with, that might be too gutsy for somebody that has a hundred acres on their family farm and uh, to do something like that. Uh, or, you know, maybe has a, there's a smaller piece of public land and they don't have a ton of large pieces of public land around them to be able to do something like that. So you got to take it all with a grain of salt, but it's interesting when you find someone that's got the guts to kind of do that and also put in mm-hmm. the type of work it takes to not only kill that deer, but get that deer back out of there. So No, definitely. And kind of like you alluded to, I'll say that part one is is uh it's like a lot more conversational like you get to know the guys and get to know kind of their style and where they hunt part two y'all get like really get into the nitty-gritty yeah so i'm excited for that one to come out yeah absolutely and uh you know another thing that they talked about which josh uh, i know you've hunted with a bunch of different guys you know you know through the years uh, especially on like specific pieces of public land or just private land where you're kind of getting all this different intel at one time and one thing they talked about is the idea of working together, you know, them being twins, mm-hmm. them being brothers, but working together. When they go out and hunt, it's like you're sitting in two different areas because they're sharing all the information together and figuring out, you know, what are those deer doing? Because they give an example. And actually, they might have told me this. Uh, we talked about this before we actually started recording because we all went out to dinner. We hung out like three or four hours before we even did this episode about the idea of like, you know, you might be in one spot, but 200 yards away, you might not see anything in this one area. But 200 yards away, there's 25 deer coming off the side of the mountain through this one spot that you don't know is there. And you won't know it's there until you start hunting your way around. Or if you have a couple guys to go in there, and yeah, it's a little aggressive, but, you know, space out, depending on, like, the sign, you may find out that the deer are coming through this one bluff gap or off this one secondary ridge point that you would have never found or might have taken you weeks to find versus, you know, just a matter of a couple of days. Uh, it's the whole idea of what we talked about a couple, let's see, two Hanes weeks ago. Chase. with I Hanes was just and about Chase. to bring that up. And the whole wolf packing, working together to share information, to learn an area quicker, and also figure out what are these deer doing and what are these mature bucks doing to kind of put yourself in the right position to kill them. Because that's how Haynes and Chase killed three bucks in Alabama over 145 inches within 13 days on public land, uh, which is ridiculous. I don't know anyone <laughs> that's ever done that before. Uh, and, you know, it's just crazy. But it's, again, working together and sharing that information. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, Josh, you probably have some experience on different properties doing some of that stuff too. Yeah, that, that's probably, I'm trying to think here just off the cuff, but I, I can't think of like an out-of-state trip that I've gone on, like a new piece where I haven't been with somebody. And we almost always do that same type of thing. We're hunting, you know, far enough away from each other where we're not running into each other, not seeing the same deer, but we're, we're close enough where we're getting a, a pretty good idea of what's happening in that general area, whether it's deer. Um, and I think also other hunters, right? Like had scenarios where uh, we've been, I've been close with a buddy and I didn't see anybody and, and he saw all kinds of activity and, and we, we moved a little bit further in, you know, to get away from some of that pressure, vice versa. So I, I think, you know, not only scouting deer with, with like a group like that, but also the other hunters and how the other hunters are using it. I think it's super, uh, super important uh, hunting like that too. So yeah, definitely, definitely done quite a bit of that and, and uh, it's a good way to do it, especially on out-of-state trips. Mm-hmm. The hunting pressure, that's another thing I'm glad you brought up, Josh, is like you kind of learn like what the hunting pressure is like because maybe your buddy's getting walked in on, but you're not getting walked in on. Well, what what's the case of that? Are he seeing more people sign you're not or vice versa? 
you can kind of key in on what are other guys doing out in the woods and kind of figure out, okay, what are those buffer areas? What are those areas that nobody's really going to? They're walking past it. They're overlooking it to then go in there and try to figure out where these bucks, you know, holding up at, um, especially during, you know, super pressure times of the year, especially like the rut. And I've heard guys, not to get too sidetracked, but talking about Ohio, these guys talk about it, I think, in the second episode of how crazy some of the pressure was in Ohio and like where you had to really do that. Like there was no such thing as out walking somebody because people were everywhere. It's just figuring out where are people walking past and then going in there and, and trying to kill those deer. And they've had success doing that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've had experience with that too. And, yeah. So funny. So we had a hunt last year, Andrew went in and, and I think I only saw one hunter the whole seven days of being or five days, however long we were at this place. Andrew had a hunter walking on him every single time. And while I was telling him, I'm like, dude, you're going to two obvious spots. You're looking yep. at Onyx. Like, Man, this looks like a great spot. You go in there, four other guys said the same thing. <laughs> it's sad, but true. <laughs> you must have you must have been in Michigan then, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Funny enough. No, that's happened to me more than once, actually, now that I think about it. it's it's uh, It can get aggravating. It can get aggravating. But I, I, I love the stuff where they were talking about also – uh, the idea of where these deer are kind of like letting people walk past them, especially they were talking about the hiking trails. Mm-hmm. I love hearing about stuff like that. I love hearing about it when people were like have these observations. And, and he mentioned like a like a small buck was standing in a, in a trail, and mm-hmm. here comes a hiker. And the, I mean, it literally just like walks behind a bush basically and lets the guy walk by and then walks right back out and starts eating again. And and he was making the point that was that was just this young deer who's like a year and a half old, what, how much more do those big mature deer know that have been around for four or five years, been through that many hunting seasons and know how to deal with people? Um, so that that kind of perspective too is, is interesting because that they don't look at things from the perspective of like, oh, I got walked in on or, oh, there's there's people in this general area, everything's ruined. Uh, he, he even gave the example, which he goes into, I think, more detail about it in the second episode about the guys who came in and started setting up a tree stand. Right in front of him, one of them like ratchets their hand yeah. to the tree. He tells the four, he tells he tells the same story in both episodes, but he goes in way more detail in the second episode. Yeah, the first episode he kind of like glances by some stuff. The second one he actually goes in more detail. It's way funnier. It's hilarious. But but it's like yeah, and then like that buck was up there kind of staging up, and he didn't notice like Adam didn't notice the buck was there until after the guys left, and then the buck just appeared, and the buck was you know a hundred yards up above him on the secondary ridge point, watching those guys, and then slowly came off. But by the time he came off, it was already dark. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the does. Um, but, yeah, it makes you wonder, like, how many times you're out there in the woods and you're, you're walking a spot, like, man, I keep getting trail cam photos of this buck. And you go in and hunt that area, you're not seeing them. And then the days you're not there, you get them on trail camera, like, there's got to be something. Yeah. He, he's, he's seeing me, smelling me, something's going read on. read my mind. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, it makes you wonder. When you think about it from the perspective of, like, that deer is sitting there in his bed, wherever, standing around where he likes to hang out doing whatever he's doing, he's already sitting there. And you, you think about when you're in a tree stand and you're, you've been sitting in the woods for like mm. an hour and a half and you notice like the chipmunk 85 yards away that's moving some leaves and you have like that level of awareness. Well, it's like, mm. well, they got to have that too. I mean, they're out there all the time and they're just laying around in the quiet woods. So if you're, if you come bebopping through the woods, uh, you don't, I mean, how, what I'm trying to get at is how often do they sit there and just like watch you? and not run off and maybe like quote unquote learn from you or whatever. Like if, if they've got their eyes on you, then, uh, then they probably feel pretty safe as, as compared to like 
not being able to see you, kind of like what we talked to Travis Murray about when they're doing deer drives and thickets. He's like, the deer don't blow out when you walk past them. They blow out when you stop and you stand there and they get unsure of where you're at. Uh, so it's just, it's just another perspective on, you know, if you get walked in on, it's, it's not the end of the world. So <laughs> that, I love, I love hearing stuff like that. Cause it gives me confidence going into the fall where when at some point or another, when I get walked in on like that hunt last year, instead of getting all pissed off and angry, you know, just sit there, t- <laughs> let the guy go by and see what happens, you know? So. Yeah. Sometimes you get yourself so worked up about it and you're like, oh, this hunt's ruined. Like a lot of people would probably just get down. You know, I, I think a lot of people are probably just like, all right, screw it. I'm, I'm done with this. But yeah, yeah. If you can kind of get through that, that mental, that mental side of it, like, all right, this, this isn't the worst thing in the world. There's, they're probably somewhat used to that. You oh, can just yeah. stick it out. I think, I think that, that can, that can be a big, uh, a big difference maker for you. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and th- we've said this before and say it again, Josh, I'll kind of put this at you, but like how many times, Josh, how many stories do you know of like, you know, dad walking their son out to the mm. uh, the stand, puts up him at the ladder stand, walks out before the dad gets back to the four wheel or whatever. Shot goes off on the afternoon hunt, and kids already killed something, uh, killed a buck coming yeah, and slipping through. And it's like it happens all yeah. the time. Yeah, and it's like there, there's yeah. there's something to that of like the curiosity, not only like the buck kind of hanging out when you're you know there, but second you leave, curiosity of like what was going on, and uh, you know you know kids or just people killing deer coming back on a back trail of like you walking in just trying to figure out what's going on uh shane that's, that's how i killed my first deer that's how i killed my first deer i was i was actually hunting with mark <laughs> at his his little farm and uh or farm he had access to and and uh got up in my tree stand he was he was hunting past me and he was just getting set up and this is back when he was filming himself and he literally turns on his camera to do like a um uh, like an intro interview and my gunshot is on that, like on the, on the footage. And like, I, I kill a deer within like 20 minutes of being out there. It's crazy. First, first, first deer is exactly like you're talking about. Yeah. And it's like, it, it, it's interesting on the, you hear more from people. It's almost like there's a curious curiosity factor. Like something walks to the woods, deer comes out, kind of assess the situation, might be go back to bed and like you get shot opportunity. But it's like what Shane Parker, who we did an episode with, the two part series with him and Paul Peter about a, almost a month ago now. Mm-hmm. And he ran 70 trail cameras just to rehash for the listeners, but most of the listeners have listened to that episode. But if you haven't listened to the episode, go back like five episodes ago and re-listen to him. Uh, he ran, he did a trail cam study, uh, working with the university, uh, 170 trail cameras on a piece of public land, uh, on 800 acres, which sounds ridiculous. Like why would you run 170 cameras where they were trying to map out, any and every movement of every deer that stepped foot on this huge massive ridge system okay and it was fascinating what they learned um and one thing he mentioned is there was scrapes located right off uh, hiking trails or access trails that guys were going in on and it seemed like a second somebody would walk through there a buck would come and check that scrape like within five minutes and it's like the curiosity factor of like just them bedding in the area clear they can hear or see what's going on and with you walking through, trying to figure out, well, what did you just do? And go in there and check the scrape, check the air, and then go back to lay down kind of where they were at. Just, again, how that can be used as a, as a potential tactic in some of these areas. Yeah. Like, hey, there's a lot of bucks on going. Let's go do a buddy system. Drop, get Walk up, kind of like you would do with a four-wheeler hunting ag. You know, take somebody out to the stand, drop them off, and keep Michael on Pike going. Him. Yeah, Michael Pikem. That's yeah. Mike Pike's done. Yeah. Josh, I don't know if, if you, you probably might not have heard that story on here, but uh, the other guy that does this podcast with us a lot, Michael Pike, he's a he's a frequent co-host. He uh, he actually yep. did that exact thing. He there's a spot that had history, had a scrape in it, a lot of deer. Him and another friend of ours walked in there, 
there's fresh sign all over the place and Michael was like, Hey, do you mind like walking back out of here and just like like give me some space and, and let them hear you walk out of here? And uh and they did that and Michael killed a fantastic buck. Yeah, like a that. really <laughs> really aw- nice awesome buck. Alabama buck came in there kind of awesome. curiosity killed him about like an hour and a half later, whatever however long ago it was. Yep. Uh, and the buck was bedded down like forty five yards from him too, in a thicket. And again, that's what kind of Mike thought. He's like the deer's probably bedded in here. Had Clay walk out the backside, walk it the same way they came in, make a lot of noise on the way out, yep. you know, stomping around. And they got all quiet and hush-hush. And the second it got quiet, the buck came in there to check out what was going on. Yep. So Heard it stand awesome. up and everything. Which, oh, man. Yeah, see, that that's what – and, man, down here, like, it, it ain't like it, – it's not like a like a little thicket. I mean, this is like a like an 85-acre clear cut that's super thick. And there's just one drainage that kind of goes up into it. And uh, and that buck was bedded just right off the edge. So it's like they're somewhere in there. You don't quite know where they are, but that's what that's one what I think about all the time is they're laying up there, and he might be 50, 80, 100 yards up in that thicket. But he's sitting there basically overlooking this SMZ, this, this little hardwood drainage, and he can't see it, but he can dang sure hear it because there's no way to get through there quietly. And, I mean, that must be how they monitor it. That's you know, if something goes walking through there. He's like, "Okay, I got something down and down next to my scrape. Let's uh, let's let it get out of there, and then let me go check it out." So, yeah, no telling how much they learn doing that. You know? Well, it's also it's like classical conditioning, like with dogs. Like I've learned this just from training Pepper, I'm a bird dog. How easy they pick up on things. Man, especially, you used especially, to give me so much crap for the bird dog analogies. Now you do them. Oh, it's it's <laughs> but it's perfect. It's like they're willing to learn. It's like like you know her reward maybe a treat or just like congratulations. Like she just gets all fired for, or gets a bird in their mouth and like that conditioning after a couple of times she like it clicks and they get it. Mm-hmm. It's like same thing with a buck. It's got to be the same thing. I'm just assuming here. It's got to be the same thing. Like if they survive a situation, they learn from that. Hey, this worked. Let's keep on doing this or keep on building upon it. It's not like they're thinking. It's just like how they're wired. Same thing with a dog. Like, I don't think the dog's thinking. It's just reacting to like what you're actually doing and yeah. what you're asking for. It's like they don't understand yeah. English. They just understand like when you make this certain sound like here, that means come to me. Yeah. Like, like you know, walk to that well, person. And I, I'm not an expert on the bump and dump stuff, but I, my understanding is a lot of that I'm talking about like that that buck feels comfortable going back into that bed because it worked the first time, right? Like he, he heard the danger coming and he, he got out of there mm-hmm. and he feels safe using that bed. So if you're sitting there when he comes back, you're good to go. So, you know, similar to what I think you're talking about, how they, they learn that kind of stuff and, and you know, stock that away for, for future reference. Mm-hmm. Also, I mean, with the, with the danger aspect of it too, I mean, if they have a negative experience with something, they learn from that. And we one time we interviewed Taylor Chamberlain on urban bow hunting like years ago, and unfortunately lost the episode. <laughs> God, yeah. But man, that that was a shame. That like I've, I still hurt that we lost that one. But one thing that he said in there that I that I like remember distinctly was he was talking about we were talking about these suburban deer hunters, and and like someone who hunts more like I don't know rural areas might think well like those deer are super tame, and he was talking about that. And he's like, yeah, they're used to people, but they, they still learn quickly. They have a survival instinct. And I remember he was like, you know, when that doe group's coming by, and they're like, man, every time we walk past that one tree right there, one of us doesn't make it. Like, <laughs> they learn pretty quickly. And so I thought that was funny. I was laughing so hard when he said that. But That, but also talking about, like, kind of that conditioning and everything. Like, they're, especially, like, in urban deer, but also, like, on, like, these hiking trails. Like, they're used to people coming through there mm-hmm. doing a certain thing. And when something comes through that's not doing what they're used to, as in, like, if a hiker comes through, they're probably booking it, as, like, he talks about in the episode, Ethan Adam. 
they're probably booking it. They're not looking around the woods. So mm-hmm. it's like, okay, this thing is walking through. It's fine. I'll sit here. But if like, you're kind of creeping through and you're stopping, you're looking around, that's acting. Acting like a predator. Acting like a predator, but it's acting agnor- or un- unnormal. <laughs> I, can't, I can't talk here. Uh, it, it's, it's not acting. You're not acting the way that it's seen other things come through their acting that looks similar to you, you know, bipedal human. And just puts them more wary and probably more willing to kind of get out of there and put them on higher alert. No, it, it's super interesting, especially like, you know, deer that like live close to roads, like bucks that bed real close to roads, like Shane Parker had in like mm-hmm. one of his bucks he was studying. You know, that deer was used to traffic, but the second a car would slow down or stop, it was like, no, I'm getting out of here. When you think turkey calls, think of Houndstooth. Houndstooth Game Calls is a company based right here in Alabama, actually based out of Tuscaloosa, and they have been making some of our favorite turkey calls since 2012. Y'all head on over to their website, see what they got. They got a little something for everybody. They have a huge selection of different mouth calls, different cuts, different read configurations. I like to go on there and get five or six different mouth calls and just run them, see which ones I like the most. You know, some days I might like the KB Hen, some days I might like the Ghost Cut. Some situations I might like the Country Girl call, you know, that I can cut on really hard where on other situations i might like the all pro that i can get a little bit softer on bottom line there's something for everybody and something for every situation and hey you can get 15 percent off of your order at houndstooth game calls by using the promo code sop24 that's sop24 use that promo code it'll get you a discount and it helps out the podcast this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Yeah, but as long as the cars were moving, that buck was sitting in his bed, nice and comfortable, and Shane was able to watch that buck from across the ridge and watch how he was reacting to vehicles coming through. It's like it just—it was used to it. So yeah, yeah, it's just—it's fun, man. It's a—it's such a fun subject. Um, it's fun listening to these guys, and it's really fun in part two as well. Listening to these guys talk about the whole betting aspect of everything because uh, discussing betting over the years on this show—I mean, we've. We've talked a lot about like buck betting and quote unquote the reliability of that whole theory and tactic and everything, and, and we've called it into question for our area where we're like, yeah, you go find the beds, but you can't really make anything of them. They got so many options, but in a place like in these more big wood settings, big mountainous mm. areas mm-hmm. where cover is a limiting factor, they don't have eighty-five acre clear cuts on every single ridge top. That that 
that bedding tactic does work. And so, like, he gave another example of where he uh, he finds a bed, and he was like, man, is a similar weather condition. And they're like, well, let's go see if there's a deer in that bed. The wind's right. And so they sneak up on it. Sure enough, there's a there's mm. a nice buck in that bed. And and hearing that kind of stuff is just it's fun to listen to and it's fun to think about. But also now that I'm like me and you are going to make a transition to like more of a big wood setting, mm. how are we going to be able to leverage that? Because really, since like the hunting bee stuff got started and people really started talking about it, I think that we've both been like really fascinated with that and wanted to make it work and tried to make it work. But for the areas that we've been hunting, we just haven't been able to make it work. Uh, there's just, to, for in my opinion, too much cover. And, and even Michael Pike would say the same thing. Yeah. Kinda, like you can find the beds when he'd come down here and, and implement these areas with large expanses of, of cut timber at different ages of cut timber. It's almost like they're using potentially more hearing to their advantage than actually the sight advantage that you might have in more big wood setting. Like the buck we just mentioned with, yeah. that Michael Pike killed, bed 50 yards into this like just un- impenetrable thicket. But allows him, like if anything's coming into the area, like he's got awesome escape routes, he can hear everything and still smell stuff, but he's like just limiting that vision aspect mm-hmm. and he's relying more on hearing. But it's like he's come down, like P- Pike's come down here and found tons of beds. Like him and Park came down here found tons of beds, but it's like there's nothing you can really go upon, like, oh, I'm going to go back in here and kill a buck in this area. It's more like he's got these 12 to 14 beds in this one general, you know, mm-hmm. one square mile area, and he's just kind of bouncing through. So you're relying more on the kind of those transition areas to try to kill him. Where if you go to, like, the big wood settings, like where Pike's gone, like yep. in, in some of the areas that we're talking about or have been scouting, it's like they're a little more reliable. Mm-hmm. Like you can kind of find where that buck is bedding. And it's like it's not, he's not bedding there all the time, like every single day. But he's specifically using this bed for certain occasions, depending on what that looks like. And Shane's data from one of these same pieces of public land we're talking about has seen the exact same stuff as well. Yep. Again, like the bucks aren't necessarily using this bed every single day, but they have this certain little route they're using. And it's very consistent, kind of like where they're going to be bedding at versus, you know, areas that kind of like we're at. It's kind of a crapshoot. Like there's a mm-hmm. bunch of different areas they can kind of focus on. It's more hard to kind of lay eyes on those deer. Um but yeah, not to get too much into the weeds. But I'm excited for part two. Part two is going to be super exciting. Yeah, yeah, so, it's going to be fun. But but Josh, we got you on here. Let me ask: Do you have anything else about the podcast episode? Because we got to talk about a little bit more about first light. Uh, no, I think we I think we covered a lot of it. It was a super interesting episode. I'll definitely be uh, tuning into to part two of that too. And um, yeah, the thermal stuff is is like it's. I feel like you just go down so many rabbit holes with that, and just like another thing to think about and how you can put that to to your advantage and um it's it's fascinating stuff when you get really going on it totally yeah it's it's overwhelming uh yeah it really is we, we so we did an episode uh not to get too sidetracked but we've done some like pretty in-depth wind episodes one was with bill vale and i think it's called the wind rule and it was from last year yeah and it's from a very 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 high level understanding of uh wind currents and thermals and, and how you know, the subtlest things can like throw that wind off and it, it's, it's fascinating. But like, I feel like at least our, after doing this podcast for so long, talking to so many different guys, like our IQ, this when it comes to thermals is like higher than what it was like three years ago, four years ago. Yeah. But then like we talked to somebody that's not used to it and it's like thermals are like super hard to understand. If like, you've never, like if you only talked about hunting wind direction and have the wind in your face, you never even learned about thermals and we start bringing thermals into the equation like oh my gosh like this is oh and you can hear it man when we did that wind rule with bill vale he he started talking about stuff and i think it was me and michael we're just like what well, yeah <laughs> like yeah. we did not understand it jacob was like Kick, keep up guys come on yeah well yeah it's also it helped that i had talked to him like three hours previously oh, like man. in great detail and i was like okay that makes sense okay let's talk about this and kind of hash it out but anyways yeah thermal thermals are, are wild and crazy but uh yeah 
something. <laughs> yeah, I get, get we can do. Yeah, we can talk about that for a long time. But transition here, Josh. Uh, of course, got you on here. Uh, got a yeah. exciting announcement for all of us. Uh, kind of, you know, for the Southern Outdoorsman is kind of joining or is joining the uh, First Light team. Super excited about that. Got you on here. Kind of talk a little bit about it. And I guess some things that kind of come on the first light side of everything. So yeah. super excited to have you on here and kind of hash everything out. Yeah, no, and and likewise, I mean, we're super excited to have you guys on the team and and looking forward to doing a lot more with you here in the future and getting your guys' feedback on stuff. And and uh, you know, I think it's going to be a, a good partnership. Really looking forward to working with you guys. Yeah, absolutely. It's like one thing we're excited about is especially with the launch of the Whitetail line uh, and, and kind of new pieces of gear coming out for that, but also having an, a way to be able to test equipment and gear down here in a slightly in a different environment. And we've talked about this previously, not on the recording, mm-hmm. but it's previously like where mm-hmm. we hunt is, is just different, uh, especially like the area that One Piece Public Land we were talking about previously. It's, just, yeah. it, it's super rugged. It's hard on gear. But trying to find something that fits for like that southern hunter um, is something that's super important for us, and, and super excited to kind of work through some of the development side of everything to kind of figure out like what's going to be best suit you know whitetail hunters' needs, whether he's hunting up in Michigan or going all the way down to you know South Alabama on a February rut hunt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I think that's one of the unique things about whitetails. I mean, look at all the different places you can hunt them, right? Like it's so vast in, in the different terrain, the different regions, and the different um, types of ground you can hunt them. We're like, okay, elk hunting, it's mostly done in the West, right? I mean, there's a few populations here in the East and things like that, but it's all pretty typical, similar um, terrain and, and features and things like that. But I mean, you can hunt whitetails from from Maine to Arizona, you know, with, with the coos deer out there. So I've, there's just so many different areas to hunt whitetails. Like it's important to be making gear and, and products that are going to work for a, a wide variety of, of whitetail hunters. Yeah, dude. Make, make gear as versatile as the whitetail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So no, we're super excited to have some folks down in the South now that can help us out with some of that stuff. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's unfortunate, but it feels like sometimes the South kind of gets left behind in the whitetail scene with so much of the action happening in the Midwest, you know, with all the big bucks that get killed in Iowa and Missouri and, you know, you name it up in the Midwest, Wisconsin, um, that sometimes the South gets left behind a little bit, which is too bad because, the hunting culture and traditions in the South is is just as strong as anywhere in the country, if if not more in some cases. So I'm excited to be to have some folks from the South now on the team, and and looking forward to getting uh, getting you guys uh, integrated with the First Light family here. Yeah, man, I'm excited. I was real excited when when y'all reached out. I think I my my first like piece of quote unquote premium hunting gear where I like really spent some money on something was uh, First Light is the Canab or whatever you called them pants. Like years ago, yeah. those merino wool pants, yeah. and yeah. I bought them like my freshman year of college as like my nice purchase because I was trying to go out west to hunt. And man, uh, that that like that totally changed my mindset towards you know having good gear and 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 being able to basically do more with less, um, specifically on the clothing side because I ended up getting yeah. them because they were like a thin merino wool pant and I was wearing them all summer and they were just super comfortable in the summer because up to that point I was used to wearing like blue jeans or Carhartts or something in the summertime scouting which which is pretty bad down here that's warm that's warm yeah one of the one of the cool things about about merino is how you know can regulate body temperatures that help you keep you warm when it's cold and also cool when you're hot um that, that's the that's one of the, the biggest features about wool and then also that you know it, it doesn't 
it doesn't stink, right? It, it doesn't get stinky after you've been wearing it for a little while. So obviously sweating down the style, things like that, things can get stunk up pretty quick. But one of the cool things about wool is it's not going to hold on to that, that, uh, that odor. Um, so it's super versatile um, piece of gear, the wool. And they start adding in like our, our white tail outerwear systems that have been launching here over the last couple of years. And um, man, we're, we're really excited about what's to come on the white tail front and uh, you know, just, feel like we're scratching the surface on on the whitetail stuff and and uh excited to see where it goes yeah yeah one thing i'm excited about is uh, i know a lot of our listeners are already probably aware first like but like understanding like the advantages of uh like a technical uh made apparel and the advantages of that verse like what we kind of all grew up wearing which is fine like you can do it sure and uh, josh you and me have talked about previously it's like i felt i felt like you know the classic southern hunting me growing up as a kid was like what's the heaviest clothing i could put on because like heavy meant warm yeah and, i mean dude having a jacket i think i still have it. I wearing find, four or five shirts it's like one of my uncle's jackets <laughs> from like the 90s or whatever that he gave me uh and just super super heavy and for like the weight it wasn't even that warm and, yeah. and, or like you yeah. get so sweat up underneath it you'd like freeze to death and that was the thing as a kid like we put all these clothes on walk out to the shooting house or whatever or the blind and then you'd freeze to death. It'd be it's thirty five degrees in the morning. It's not even it's not even below freezing. But you get so you know sweaty. You're freezing to death. Feet are cold. The whole nine yards. Heavy boots. That was another thing. Like wearing super heavy boots, like thousand gram insulated. Uh, you know leather. Uh, you know lace up boots. Just getting sweat up, freezing to death in them. And it's just like I feel like a lot of people just even today don't understand like the advantages of using uh, more technical apparel, and and understanding that like yeah it's. Pricing wise, it's not as expensive as going up to Walmart or uh, you, you name the big box store and just getting whatever their brand of you know camo is just because it's camo. But it's the the value of putting something uh, where it allows you to be able to be more efficient. And I know, exactly. I think we talked about this in the second episode actually with uh, Adam and Heath is being efficient with your clothing when you're going in there really far. And even if you're not going in there really far, but having it where like I don't have to pack you know. A, big old heavy set of bibs and a jacket in an area which can be 35 degrees and I can layer in a specific way where I can go in there and have a puffy or something I can put on in the stand to keep me warm but it doesn't allow me to have so much bulk with me while I'm going in there yeah. and uh, restrict you know my shooting capabilities and everything else mm. yeah. yeah I mean I think layering is, is definitely a key especially in those types of scenarios where you got long hikes into your stand or even if even if you're just hunting your own you know your own farm or whatever you got a couple hundred yard walk you still don't want to get all sweated up in your, your bibs and big jacket. So like anything that you can do to, to create almost like a layering system or a kit, I think that's, that's kind of where we have, 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 I think excelled with having the Merino wool next to skin. It's still going to keep, if you do sweat a little bit, it's going to keep you warm, even when it's wet, another uh, bonus to Merino wool, but then being able to, to put a pair of bibs on or your jacket that we're able to maximize warmth without being like the Michelin man, right? Mm -hmm. Um, having, having, having technical gear, that's gonna, that's gonna work well, um, without adding a bunch of bulk. So and all of our, all of our whitetail line is like designed to work with itself. So like whether it's your catalyst system with the, the jacket and bibs, um, like the whitetail catalyst or the sanctuary 2.0, which is our you know, late season gear. Like it all has integration where you can put your hands into the, the muff that's on the, uh, bibs do like the kit link system. Um, there's, there's harness pass throughs, there's removable hoods. So they're all just designed to be able to work together to minimize, you know, bulk while, while still keeping you warm and, uh, um, allowing you to stay in the tree longer. 
Yeah, and somebody in one of uh, the Facebook groups that we're active in, uh, it's actually Wes's group, the, the Wolfpack Forum, uh, was asking about uh, sweating on the way to the stand. They were asking about this exact subject, and there's a bunch of great answers on there. And, and one of the things that I told him and what I, what I always tell people when we get in a conversation about this kind of thing is they're like, well, how do you not sweat? And for me here in the South, and I think you do this too, Jacob, is when we're going in and it's going to be pretty cold, it doesn't really get that cold down here. So yeah, cold talking. is relative to like where you <laughs> yeah. live. Because when I was in Iowa, with the, in late season Muslim, oh. what they called cold is like like people. There'd be a weather advisory in Alabama. People like, would don't die go outside down here. Yeah, like but. for real. <laughs> so like down here, you're talking like if you're like walking in and it's in like the low 30s, like right there around freezing. That's cold for us. And then True. you know your high might get up into the 50s or so. Uh, yep. So, like, I might just wear, like, a pair of those guide pants, like, thin pants and, like, a T-shirt or maybe a long sleeve shirt where when I get out of the truck, I'm, like, freezing. It's super cold. Halfway to the stand, I'm getting kind of warm because I'm moving. And then what I'm carrying to the stand is, like, maybe a pair of bibs or something and a, and a yep. jacket. Yep. And so that's yep. that's all I'm carrying in, and, and it just makes things easy. And yep. uh, so that, that's that's what I like about the gear. I can carry less stuff, but... And another thing people ask about a lot, and Josh, I'd, I'd love to get your mm-hmm. opinion on this, is when people are asking about gear like this, and they're like, well, what should I buy first? Mm. Like, I'm not going to buy everything at once, but what should I go for first? And usually they're asking, should I get this jacket? Should I get this pair of puffy pants or whatever? And usually I'm like, dude, get the get the long johns and the, the base layers. Like, that's the first thing yeah. you spend money on. Because all the other stuff isn't going to work if you got crappy yeah, base layers. Exactly. I, I think that's a great point. I think some of it's relative to where you are in the country. Some of it's relative relative to the the style of hunting that you do. Like someone who's going to be spot and stalk hunting or still hunting or whatever is going to be probably different recommendations from someone that's sitting in a tree stand, you know, twelve hours a day. Mm. But yeah, I think you're dead on. I think I think getting a, a good set of base layers, um, whether that's you know. Uh, for you guys, the, the warmest stuff you might want is like the kiln, which is kind of our mid-level um, stuff. It'd be probably too warm for your early season, but probably warm enough for your late season. Or like a, the further north you get, like the furnace base layers are just unbelievable. Keep you warm. You know, they're like a, a thick merino, but they don't, they're not like super bulky. Um, I'm telling you, it's like the best base layer I've ever, I've ever had. And you could wear, you can get away with just wearing that or maybe like a wick, which is like the real lightweight one next to skin and then the furnace. Um, but yeah, I think a good pair of base layers is is always a great option. And then I think, you know, from there, I would say get the, get the system or get the equipment that's going to be the most versatile for the majority of your season. Um, and then as you get more into it, start filling in pieces where you feel like maybe you're, you're lacking on maybe some warm weather stuff or maybe some cold weather stuff. Um, so I think it's kind of dependent on where you're at. Um, but base layers is always a, a great option. And then I would look at like when you're doing the majority of your hunting, like if you're a guy that doesn't hunt much early season stuff, well, maybe the warm gear is not, you know, maybe like the catalyst system is not the best for you. Maybe you're looking more for like the solitude set when you're getting into November, December timeframe for you guys, probably. If you like the early season stuff and don't hunt so much in the, in the cold weather, well then maybe look at a catalyst set or something like that. That's going to be more, uh, relative to when you're hunting during the season. Yeah, that's a super good point. And Josh, you and me talked about this previously about like, mm-hmm. you know, in the Southeast, just cause like, and I'm talking the deep South here. I'm not talking people like call it like people from Kentucky. They're like, Oh, we live in the South. Yes. But yes, kind of. like you're, you're, you're in the SEC for playing football, but like, it, you know, if we're talking about, you know, the deep South, that's not on my radar and Tennessee barely makes the cut there too. 
And when you're talking about in, in like the deep south, like the versatility, like you said, like we never, I mean, you maybe have talked about this. We never have, very rarely we ever have multiple days in a row of super frigid weather where we're having, I'm talking like teens, 20s. Most of time you have like a day or two that gets to that temperature and then you're back up in the 40s or 50s. Yep, um, yep, yep. That's very, very common down here where we're at. Now, again, Tennessee, Kentucky, y'all are different up there, but I'm saying deep south, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, uh, South Carolina, all that kind of Louisiana. stuff. Louisiana, even southern part of Arkansas, kind of similar. Um, and it's like having stuff, having a, a system that makes you versatile, but also understanding that, like, you know, we have me and Andrew have been rocking the solitude uh, bib and jacket set for the last couple of years, last couple of seasons, and I love it. But like Josh, I told you, like I could count on two, at least two hands, maybe. But it's probably seven or eight times I actually had to wear it in Alabama, specifically last year yeah. when it was that cold. Most of the other time, like you know, I was like getting away with like a uncompadre hoodie or a puffy uh, jacket when I'm like rifle hunting, kind of hunting at a distance, yeah. not necessarily bow hunting. And, uh, you know, some base layers and the guide pants and some base layer. That's it. And, like, you could get yep. away with that, like, if it's 50, 60 degrees, like, no problem. Yep. Uh, or even down the 40s. But um, it's, like, understand that, like, you got to figure out, like, what's the best bang for your buck, where you're at. But also understand that, like, hey, if you're in the deep, deep south, maybe, like, I love the solitude setup. But it's, like, when it comes to, like, investing for your first piece of gear, maybe, like, that, that's not going to be, your, like, where your money's best spent. Maybe it's, you know, like you said, the catalyst or, um you know, uh, talking like maybe getting like just a good pair, like you said, the base layers, um, and, and kind of like, rock- like a wick hoodie, I think would be like a perfect piece for the South. Cause that's, oh. that's something you could wear as an exterior piece early season mm-hmm. and then layer that as your, as your, you know, base layer next to skin as the season progresses. Um, obsidian Merino pants or the obsidian foundry Merino pants would be a great early season pant and then work your way into that catalyst. The later you get, and add base layers underneath as you go to, to, to get that catalyst system further into the year. Yep, absolutely. So like that's that's a big part of it. Uh, it's kind of just explaining or working with people like, if you're going to get something, really think about, you know, not only what your budget is, but figuring out that time of the year that you're going to be using, you decide to use this piece. Because like, I think like, Andrew, like you said, like a lot of guys like, man, I live in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. I hunt, you know, Alabama, oh, I'm going to get this big old jacket. Yeah. And I'm like, how often are you hunting like legitimately, how often are you hunting when like you have to have that big jacket? Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe it's a couple times a year, and maybe like that five times a year you use it. Yep. It's worth you buying that right now. But yeah. I'm like, I'd rather use something I'm using every single time I'm going out, and then kind of using it as part of a layering system to then build upon. If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and kind of spend that money and and as you go, kind of figure out what what's right for you. Uh, because exactly. I think I think that I, at one point I was about to get. I think it was maybe the sanctuary jacket, yeah, yeah i told you which like, is ginormous was, and you're like was, you don't you don't need that down here and i'm glad i didn't buy that because i don't really need it and i ended up getting the solitude mm-hmm. stuff and that is like perfect for what i use it for down here well so. just 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 for reference i wore that sanctuary the sanctuary 2.0 up in north dakota last year it was negative 30 degree wind chills <laughs> and I, I i was good in that but uh that might be a little might be a little on the warm side for you uh you know, unless it's it's really getting cold, so probably a good call there. Yeah. Oh yeah. It being sixty degrees warmer in Alabama than what you were dealing with out there. Someone was rocking a, a sanctuary, man, dude. You'd be sweating up, and that's why I told you because Andrew was talking about bottles. Like, dude, unless you're like moving to Iowa or someplace, like someplace where you're having hunting late season, extended periods of super cold weather, it's, it's just not needed. Like, you can get away with the layering system, and that's kind of gets back to it. it's like getting together with a getting put together a very versatile layering system that can kind of get you through the whole season but when you need it you can kind of layer up and use that outerwear that makes sense for that time of year but you're only wearing it for 
you know, a couple of days, and then it finally warms back up where you can kind of get back to you know, kind of like the wick hoodie kind of weather. Because it's very yeah. common, dude. It'd be January here, and we'll get like a little cold spell come through for like five, six days where it's like down in the 30s, and the next thing you know, it's 55 degrees, mm-hmm. and you're out there like you're just – it's like sweat and humidity is like the biggest issue we have down here. And, uh, again, that's uh, – you know, if you can figure out how to mitigate and, and manage that, you're going to be a lot more happier when you're in the woods. Yeah, so. dude, hundred percent. Anyways, no, but Josh, um, just for kind of listeners out there that are maybe interested yeah. in, uh, you know, looking at first light and stuff. You know, of course, the whitetail lineup is has been launched. It's rocking and rolling, rocking Spectre. Um, is there anything else that, you know, guys need to be aware of when it comes to like, as products are being released? Cause I know like going all in on the whitetail lineup, you know, there's things going to be coming out. Um, I know there's going to be stuff coming out later this summer into the fall. And then of course, you know, every year we're going to have more and more stuff coming out. But when it comes to like guys keying in on, you know, some of this new equipment that's going to be coming out, is there anything you would recommend as like, um, you know, places to not only follow first light, but kind of figure out Mm -hmm. when things are coming out, what's worth them purchasing and of course you know coming from the marketing side like oh man you need to buy everything <laughs> like, you know, get it all get it all like you want a whole bunch of jacob myers running out there that just wants everything <laughs> but like when it comes to, like fine-tuning like what's gonna be you know grid fit for a guy you know what is again kind of like your kind of final thoughts on that uh kind of yeah, wrap cu- up that topic a couple a couple things so if, if you go to our website just firstlight.com you can get signed up for our newsletter and, and updates so if any new products coming out you'll you'll be informed not only new products but different sales and promotions that we have going on not only with like whitetail and, and Western uh, uh, Western big game pieces coming out, but um, also be launching a waterfowl line later this year, uh, later this summer. So that's exciting, especially probably for a lot of folks down south, a lot of serious waterfowl hunters down there. So that's that's exciting stuff coming on that front. Um, but also like our, our customer service team is like hands down, like best in the industry. And we do this, uh, it's called virtual outfitting. So you can go to our website and you can actually set a time to talk with our customer service uh, reps and they can walk through like different pieces that they'd recommend and um, really get you set up with the pieces that, that they think would be the best for your hunting scenarios. Um, so pretty cool, pretty cool feature. Um, and you can find all that on our, on our website. Absolutely. Sweet. Awesome. awesome. Andrew, you get, what else you got? Uh, that's all I got, man. I'm, I'm ready for uh, everyone to hear next Monday's episode. I'm super excited. Super excited about that one. You're going to get a lot of good feedback on it, I feel like. so. Yeah, I think we're going to have some listener success stories come in. Yeah, I think we will. I think we will, my man. Some so. some epic ones, too, I'm sure. Because <laughs> it always seems like we get a couple – we always have, like, a few listeners that are just wild. And they're like, dude, I'll do whatever these guys said, like – and just go out there and have success early season. Oh, yeah. oh man, I dude, bumped this deer, found, found man, his bed, came in there. Dude, I hope I'm the listener success story from that one because, <laughs> man, we always joke about this, Josh, where we're, we're talking to all these guys and we get just like heaps of listener success stories that come in during the fall where people are like, man, I, I did this from so-and-so's episode and took this advice and they're killing all these big bucks. I'm like, where's my big buck, man? <laughs> I host this thing. Well, like we said last year, Andrew screwed the pooch on his big buck. Yeah, so I, I, I going to Keep on bringing it up. I, till, I till choked. It was bad. I've... Well, you know, if you guys if you guys see some some guy wandering around the woods this fall, getting their hand ratchet strapped to a tree, it might it might be me. <laughs> yeah, man. I got. I'm looking forward to listening to that episode too, and uh, um, should be a good one. Awesome. Yes, sir. Awesome. Well, Josh, we appreciate you coming on, man. Uh, hey. it's, it's been good kind of talking with you. It's super exciting kind of what we got going on with First Light. And, guys, you'll hear more about that later as we uh, kind of get through the summer and going into the fall. Uh, but, again, uh, very excited to be part of the uh, First Light team and family. 
And uh, it's going to be an excited uh, season this year, Josh. So, yeah, a lot yeah, to look man. forward to. Yeah, we're real excited to have you guys as well. And, uh, yeah, hopefully uh, more, to come, uh, more to come this fall. Yes, sir. Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, We talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast, this show was literally made for you. It was literally designed for you, which means you're going to love it. You know, all the best companies in mobile hunting are going to be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the Southeast are going to be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are going to be there. It's just, it's going to be an incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock-on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you, it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all going to be there and you, you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you really like it, you're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out and figure out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no brainer. You got to be at the show. Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.